This is a crowd podcast. Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a broadcaster and fertility coach, and I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. We'll be your trusted guides, chatting each week with experts and people just like you to let you know you're not alone. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Fertility Podcast. I was just complimenting Kate on her outfit, um, Hmm. which is absolutely no use for you because you can't see it. But Kate's wearing what I'd call a kind of, now let me think how I'd describe that colour. It's a kind of pate pink. Oh my God, that sounds disgusting. (laughs) Pate pink. I was trying to think of the pink it is and it's a kind of, it is a kind of nude, nude's probably better. She's got an off the shoulder kind of bardo bardo top and uh, she just stood up and did a little wiggle of her in her white jeans because if you haven't heard in in the last episode Kate revealed that she's got a significant birthday coming up and she's been on a Mm -hmm. real mission it's not that she needs to but to um, lose a little bit of weight and Mm -hmm. uh, you've been rediscovering your wardrobe haven't you I've been rediscovering my wardrobe and would you like an update on the weight loss well I'm more impressed that you're wearing white jeans I think that says it all I mean if you want to put a number to it but you're wearing white jeans I know, wearing white jeans because I feel confident. They are not confident. forgiving. They are looking good on you, though. <laughs> well, I will tell you because actually this will make me accountable. Okay, I think to keep it was going. 10 pounds last time we spoke. We are now at 12 pounds. So nearly a stone. Ooh, 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 nearly a stone, yeah. And that's what I wanted to do is get to a stone by next Tuesday when my 19-year-old son arrives home from four months. And he goes, oh my goodness, I know, and he goes, mother, you're looking so slim. <laughs> but what if he doesn't say anything? <laughs> I know, he probably won't because he'll be really tired and um, just, yeah, a bit miserable for being home. So I'm sure he won't say anything. Oh, we'll but... find out next time we chat. How's your week been? Well, I was, I was thinking about what I wanted to mention about this week. And you know the standout moment for me, Kate and I have recorded a couple of podcast episodes this week. We do them in advance. And we had a conversation with Amber Izzo, who will be sharing with you in a couple of weeks' time, because we'll be talking about the postcode lottery. And Amber really, really struck a chord in that she's so impressive in her determination. Now, we've both actually been talking about getting Amber on the show for a good while since she kind of burst onto the Instagram scene has just been so busy and prominent Mm. in what she's been doing. One of the most significant things that she has created is this Fight for IVF campaign, which is all about the postcode lottery. And when we spoke this week, she was waiting to hear about a decision from the local CCG Peterborough and Cambridge. And Oh, we might as well mention it now because we'll mention it again in the episode. But mm. what they were hoping was that having raised the issue and got lots of people involved and Amber had had a meeting with the CCG, that they would review their cut of the funding. And they have, haven't they? They have. I know. And her, if you can go onto Instagram and have a look at Amber Izzo's page and look at the video that she put on when they were waiting for the news, it's beautiful isn't it I, I there are no other words for it it's absolutely beautiful and the the different emotions that are on amber's face for that two minute video is incredible and then the end amazing it was just so lovely that people are so willing to share this and one of the things we were mm. talking about was that willingness and it's just become so apparent i started the week actually that we're talking about doing a, an instagram takeover for the fertility show and I've, ne- I've never done one before and I've been putting it off for ages. The fertility show had asked me the last bout that they did and I'd said to them and I'd said to Kate, I just don't know what to do and it's so scary. You and, were brilliant. Well, 
Thank you. But what I found about the whole thing is this space that we're in, this especially this Instagram TTC space, I've had a bit of a love-hate relationship with it because some people just seem to ace it the whole time being in it. And I struggle with being in it all the time mm, and, and have very too. much had to come to terms. Kate and I have talked about this a lot, actually. Mm. I've come to terms with that it's only us that are putting this pressure on ourselves and how we show up. And as long as we show up, which is what we do with the podcast and what we do with the content that we share, that then I'm sure you're not really judging going, I've not, I've not seen Natalie post a story today. And maybe No, but do you know what? And know. this is what we've talked about, haven't we, before? And I firmly believe, and hats off to people that can be on Instagram all the time, but I think you can't be busy. You can't have a busy business because there's absolutely no way, unless their business is all just about Instagram and being on Instagram, which some people it is, isn't it? It's that type of influencer that is all about just doing that. But if there's any other business that they're doing, they can't. They can't have a busy business because there's no way I would have time to be on Instagram all the time or you. I think it's a funny thing about being prepared and thinking about what you want to say and how you want to show up. And anyway, mm. the point being mm. that Amber was was so fascinating to talk to in that how we were both like she's so composed in everything that she was sharing with us because she's been on such a journey and she's still she's so young. pretty young. And just make sure you've subscribed to hear that episode because it is coming up in a couple of weeks' time. Please make sure you've subscribed because at the point of talking to you, Kate and I do this just before we share the episode on the Monday. I'm heading to the British Podcast Awards this weekend. Yes. And... It's a real funny one. I'm going to support some friends that have been nominated and I'll be able to tell you in the next chat how they did and what it was all like. But I was just looking at our reviews for the podcast, which we do love reading. And it would be ma- amazing if you've got the time to give us some because it's been it's been a little while since we've had some reviews from you. And I, I never like to ask too often because I always feel it does seem a bit desperate. But then actually, <laughs> I want to hear what you think. We want mm. to hear what you think, especially... Good or bad. Well, exactly. And we shared the mm. episode that we did last week about the CMA, which is um, all the new guidance that is for clinics and I'm still not convinced that you get it and I'm not being rude by that but whenever we Kate and I talk about this to you either live on Instagram or in our closed Facebook group it feels a bit like you don't get what's going on and this is quite a significant change for you and and I really want to know if that episode helped I think it's not having the impact not the episode I think the CMA review is not having the impact that I think I thought it would have because I hear all the time about women concerned that do clinics have a commercial interest in what they're offering to them? Are they being fair? Yet this CMA review is so important because it will hopefully mean that actually it is all fair and that you are being offered what you're supposed to be offered. There is transparency, but I don't think it's had the impact somehow. I think from the feelers I've put out with the clinics is the clinics haven't quite done anything about it yet because they're still Mm. trying to work out what they're going to do about it. So maybe as a patient, you're not actually seeing any difference. But if you listen to the episode and let us know what you think and see whether it gives you more of an insight into questions that you can ask, and that's really good feedback for us to know if that's the kind of information you want us to carry on sharing with you, so please just let us know. You can email info at thefertilitypodcast.com or leave us a review. It's dead easy in Apple Podcasts and there'll be links in the show notes of how you can leave a review as well because mm. we probably should move on to this episode. Mm. <laughs> uh, we probably should. We've chatted long enough. Chat away. And this is a bit of a, an interesting one because in the journey that we've been sharing of what you might be trying to get your head around in terms of fertility treatment, we wanted to answer this question, is RUI worth it? And I think we both felt that it's not, really because we were both a bit unsure but I was keen to speak to our guest who you're going to hear from in a moment he's a a fertility consultant called Rami Wakim 
who had said to me that he was a specialist in RUI, which is why we've got him on. And he did get quite technical and I did remove a lot of the, the technical stuff in the stats from it. So if you want more stats on it, just let us know again. We can send you to the stats. But it was more to give you an overview of it. What do you think, Kate, in terms of the number of people asking about RUI that you hear? Certainly I'm seeing women not being offered it anywhere near as much as perhaps when I, you know, maybe even two years ago, I think it's definitely decreased. I think the general feeling among women and men is that actually it's not worth it. And I personally, Hold I'm not really sure that it is. Let's have a listen to Rami and you can tell me after. Okay. So I'm now going to welcome Dr. Rami Wakim to the Fertility Podcast. He is a fertility consultant and amongst the many ways that uh, Rami works with his patients, he is a specialist in RUI, which is something that um, we'd spoken about, we think about four years ago now at the fertility show. And I've been trying to um, get into Rami's diary. It's not taken too long then. <laughs> nice to have you here. <laughs> I'm very happy to be with you finally. And, um, you know, because of this uh, pandemic and all what happened, uh, it had to be postponed, but maybe now is the right time because we gathered like even more uh, data and maybe we can talk even more in depth about the IUI, which I'm happy to answer any questions. Brilliant. So as a starting point, explain what IUI or intrauterine insemination, did I say it right? Interuterine. Intrauterine. Oh my goodness. Interuterine insemination. Off you go. To give you like a few, you know, history about uh, intrauterine insemination, it was one of the very old techniques like to help to improve uh, the pregnancy rates. Uh, it even started like from the early 1800s in order to try to improve this uh, pregnancy rate with 55 insemination and only one got pregnant. In 53, 1953, we have our first successful IOI with frozen uh, semen sample. And uh, in the 70s, uh, the sperm banks were commercialized. So it was not only except like with the sperm washing techniques were introduced during the early IVF years, you know, we are talking about end 70s, beginning 80s, that the interest for IUI was catching up. As we know that it is a common treatment for LGBT couples and single women. The problem lied actually with the IUI data because we don't have data. The Middle East, for example, Asia, Australia, Canada, US, they don't offer any data. It's only Europe. And this started in 2002, where, uh, where IUI was performed and in 44 countries. Only 35 countries consider IUI as an ART technique, as assisted reproductive uh, technique. It's held within like a, uh, an IVF uh, sort of clinic with a proper sort of uh, uh, assessment sperm washing, data collections, and consent forms. And so, so it's like a kind of medicalized, kind of to speak, uh, way of treating. So Rami, do you think that as, like you say, in this country, we have IUI under the ART umbrella? Umbrella. So if you've got IVF in one hand and you've got IUI in the other hand, do you think yes. that IUI is worth it or is IUI really having sex in a clinical room? That's a very good question. So um, I go back to the Ashley uh, Capri workshop group in 2009, where they concluded that IUI treatment basically requires ovarian uh, simulation. 
and IOI was mostly performed as first-line treatment or practice. Um, however, because of the ovarian stimulation and there is no way to control it, except with minimal sort of control, whether with injections or with uh, tablets, there is an increased rate of multiple pregnancy. So is it considered as just a poor substitute for IVF? Also, more trials were needed for IUI uh, with mild stimulation, and there was no randomized controlled trials, so no good studies. And that's why IVF center were less interested in having, uh, uh, you know, offering treatment uh, such as um, IUI. Look at France, for example. France, I'm talking about delivery rates per cycle IUI varies between 4.5% and 20%. Whereas in the ASHRAE uh, register for IUI with husband semen or partner semen, we are talking about as low as 1.5% to 17% in 2009 and 1.3 to 14% in 2011. You can see like, so because of the lack of studies, we are like a little bit short. However, now it's getting even like more and more interest. We know that now that it's uh, ovarian stimulation should be offered and as it is effective in unexplained with mild main factor, i.e. the total motile account is 10 million or more. One of the things that I was keen to ask you about, because we know for a lesbian couple, for example, they're often expected to have six rounds of IUI before they might be eligible for NHS funded IVF. Now, when we're talking about six rounds that somebody's having to privately fund, what kind of cost are we talking for a round? For, for a, I know it's ballpark figure, um, for IUI. I have, I have these uh, nice guidelines, which states that patient who have not conceived after six cycles of donor or partner insemination, despite the evidence of a normal ovulation, for example, tubal patency and semen analysis, which is uh, normal, should be offered a further six cycles of unstimulated IUI. And this before IVF isn't even is considered. This was in 2013. This is a nice guidelines. Can you believe it? So that's like, that's 12 rounds. That's 12 rounds, yes. Wow. 12 rounds so a year a, a year one effectively a of doing IUI if you were doing it every month which you might not do in 2016 nice guidelines came up with patients with unexplained infertility or mild endometriosis or mild male factor should not be offered routinely IUI but rather advise them to try to conceive naturally for a total of two years before IVF will be considered this is nice guideline 2016. So, so exactly. So what are the factors that are like mainly now or what to make your question, to answer to your question, I want to make IUI worth it, yes? So what tools do I have to make it worth it and to convince people and to have like at least some statistics to say, Yes, I have the backup of these statistics to uh, offer IUI whenever indicated. So if I have a sperm morphology, which is uh, good uh, as normal, like 4% or more, with a total motile sperm count above 5 million, okay, or an inseminating motile count of 1 million, this should be considered like a, a, a go-ahead with the IUI. The timing of the IUI itself, so you have to be very careful about the timing of the IUI. We say like 
the best timing would be anything between 24 hours to 40 hours after HCG. Also, in natural cycle, we can do it one day after the LH surge. Uh, you remember we talked about, uh, uh, is it one uh, offering one IUI versus two IUIs, like double insemination versus single insemination? In one yes. go? In one go? In one go, yeah, in one go. So we have like uh, six studies which looked at almost 900 cycles of IUI, and they concluded that a double insemination seems to be more effective for male infertility rather than single IOI. So that's, that's good in a way that now we know that if there is a male problem, male factor, double insemination could be or seems to be more effective than single IOI. Rami, I have, to, I, have to, I have to say that in the question of us asking about is it worth it, it feels like yes. the evidence is against it. No matter, no matter what you do, you cannot compare results with IVF. Okay, so now IVF is, 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 is uh, giving you like a higher success rate in shorter period of time. For the IOI to be like successful, obviously there is not one single parameter for or predictor for success. It has to be well-timed. A well-timed means I know exactly when to do the procedure. Maybe slow release using ovarian stimulation, less than 40 years, Distal tubal block should be excluded. Motile count should be uh, uh, more than 5 million. HPV negative for at least three cycles. Yeah. So if all this together, this can result in a cumulative pregnancy rate comparable to IVF and this. There is also a study done by at the London Women Clinic. They have concluded about IUI. It was like a huge number of patients over many years that women less than 40 years should not be offered more than six treatment cycles. In patients up to 42 years, three attempts on. For donor IUI, it performs better in stimulated cycle rather than natural. And the figure they quoted is up to 29% cumulative live birth rate can be achieved. That's over so many years with a high number of patients. I cannot ignore a figure such as as high as 29% for cumulative liver state. So if you tell me, is it worth it or not? Of course it's worth it. But we have to know exactly the selectivity of the patients that I'm treating. Yeah. And I think it's important to manage people's expectations when we're talking about this. And that's why we wanted to explain those different steps like you have. That was really like interesting to hear the kind of the criteria ultimately, because otherwise there's an assumption that this is the fix like there is still a perception that IVF is a guarantee. So that's why we were keen to highlight. That's right. And that's why we are here to correct all this, you know, false expectation or like exaggerated expectations. But we have to be realistic, actually, in order to achieve this kind of... Uh, 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 it, it has to be mutual. I can offer this so long the indications are right. And so long I have a patient who is willing maybe to accept one, two, three failures. When you talk about the tubal patency issues, if um, somebody is looking to speak to their GP, if they're looking to go down a, a sperm donor route, for example, and they're trying to maybe cover some of the cost of the investigation, are they going to be like, are they going to be able to be referred for a tubal test if they are then maybe going to be paying for a series of IUI on 
the NHS. Would that something like that happen? Or is it all just all of these tests are part of the payment package that you're going to have to do? No, I, I think I think uh, is justified uh, to have a tubal patency test before IUI. It's an invasive procedure. It's a, a cost, a cost. There is cost involved. I'm not talking about time sexual intercourse. Time sexual intercourse, that's okay to uh, uh, maybe give a try of three months so long there is no risk factors involved. Like obviously in the history taking, you should ask for risk factors such as lamedia history or she had uh, like, uh, operations before or pelvic infections before. But if there is no risk factors, then we are allowed to maybe try three months, okay? It doesn't cost anything. However, for IUI, before proceeding, I mean, the last thing you want to uh, discover is to have a kind of blocked tubes after like three rounds of, of IUI or six rounds of IUI. So this should be priority to at least uh, tick the box to say that, okay, I have the confirmation that I have patent tubes and hope for the best. Rami, am I right in from my conversations with patients? When I probably started my practice eight years ago, I used to hear a lot about IUI. That seemed to be the first step into art treatments. But I'm hearing less and less now. You know, rarely am I hearing a couple tell me, yeah, oh yes, we're we're going for our, you know, our obligatory rounds of IUI before we move on to IVF. I'm not hearing that anymore. So in your opinion, do you think at the moment it's been done an awful lot less than it was? Yes. And uh, it, it's it's double double like you, you have to look at the both uh, sides like IVF clinics rather than go for higher success rates at one go rather than losing time on IUI. Don't forget that there is an element of ovarian reserve or age factor that it is very subjective. Now I can see like if they are trying like for two years or one year. Is it really unexplained or is it not? Or maybe underdiagnosed? So all this, I, I don't know. Because some people like come with just like, you know, okay, fine, unexplained, let's try. Uh, male factor, is it, is it subnormal? Is it really abnormal? Has it been repeated twice at least to check like what's going on? Because sometimes you jump on conclusions without having the right time to investigate and to really look at it. But we have this kind of commitment to help the woman even with whatever her choices are like i don't have the cost to 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 go for ivf maybe i want to discuss the options of iui is it is it okay yes or no and you have to have the willingness of the doctor to accept this in order to offer her this treatment not to obviously lose extra time which could be like very precious time like maybe three cycles rather than six maybe six rather than a year you know what i mean you have to sit with the patient and know exactly what is their priority some people are very scared of IVF, very scared of IVF. if there is a chance for iui like why not accepting that it is less successful than IVF, accepting that it is less invasive cheap and people used to think about it as its first line. However, now, uh, uh, if, for example, like indicated, uh, I would not shy off like offering IUI for patients 
to uh, see. But however, we both know that we have to have realistic expectations. And just finally, Rami, would you say you mentioned people being very afraid of IVF? Would you say then that IUI is maybe something that is considered more accessible in certain communities? We've talked in the past on the podcast about access to fertility treatment, for example, in Black and Asian communities where there's still such stigma around infertility treatment. Well, and, and infertility anyway, especially, you know, with your background in the Middle East and communities, again, where infertility is considered shameful and there's not necessarily the awareness. Is then IUI maybe considered more accessible and less invasive and therefore less scary? Uh, of course, of course. Like this is like absolutely like this is why people like, go for IUI as first line. And then they said, OK, OK fine, let's see the benefit of the doubt. If I can get away with a, a pregnancy and the baby with lesser cost, lesser invasiveness, that's well and good. But if I have to, you know, like she has seen herself, she has gone through the experience of one, two, three cycles, stimulated, not stimulated, whatever. And then at the end, as if like she gets like this conviction that yes, maybe I should go now for IVF without having regrets. Because the problem is that they go for IVF, it doesn't work. They said, oh, why I didn't get uh, go to uh, IUI first, for example. And you cannot solve this problem. But mind you now, even like from the Middle East and whatever, um, the, 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 the concept has completely changed. Because even as young as uh, 20s, in their 20s, uh, early 30s, now there is shift in, in actually dictating even to IVF clinic that I want to go ahead with IVF and not even IVF to ICSI straight away. They don't want to waste time because also the pressure from family and parents and all this stuff acts in a negative way. So instead of you trying to put them at ease, okay, we'll start, we have all the time, you have fantastic reserve, you are very young, uh, there is absolutely no uh, rush to, 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 to go for IVF, but however, you face couples panicking just because like they didn't get pregnant after uh, three or six months, and then they want not only IVF, ICSI, straight away, bang, they want yeah. That's where we know we've the education piece is still so prominent. Rami, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for explaining that and for giving us more to um, consider and debate in terms of the argument about whether IUI is worth it. So thank you for kind of spelling that out for us. I think it's really useful. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Right. So have you changed your mind? You're about to say before we heard Rami that you didn't think it's worth it. I'm still not sure. It's like, I know there's that 29% success rate for some of it, but, and I understand that if the idea of IVF is, is terrifying and maybe there's certain perceptions from your your community or your your own personal beliefs that IUI might be a better entry point into some form of assisted reproductive treatment. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think for same-sex partnerships, absolutely for women, 100%. Anything else? No, I I don't actually. I still don't. I haven't changed my opinion. I still don't think it's worth it. So if you're struggling to conceive. And you've been told that you need treatment, unless you'd say you're in a same-sex couple or there, there are these quite specific circumstances. If you were advised it, would you say to question it and push to go for fertility treatment? Not necessarily. I think I, what I would say is, is push for the rationale for being offered it 
And if you're happy that you've been offered it for the right reasons that is pertinent to you, and that's what's so important is, you know, I'm, I'm being very blanket approach here saying that I don't, I don't necessarily feel that it's worth it. But actually, for some couples, it absolutely could be. Yeah. So I think if you've been offered it, it's important to understand why you've been offered it and what are the chances of success like for you as an individual couple. Sound advice. Right. Before we let you go, we're going to have one more bit of expert advice from our resident expert, James Nicopoulos. Kate's laughing laughing because that Instagram takeover I did for the fertility show, I'd asked James to do a video and he sent me his video through and I realised that I'd been saying his name wrong. We've always been calling him James Nicopoulos. So as of now, I'm introducing him as he says it, which is James Nicopoulos. So Kate's now laughing because we know we've been saying it wrong and he never told us. No, I think we need to give James a big apology when we next see him, don't we? And we are speaking to him soon. So have a listen to him. And if you have a question you'd like to ask him, just email info at the fertility podcast.com or pop it on any of our socials because you'll see us reminding you there as well and we'll tell you how you can get in touch with us after james ask the expert 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 so this lady says that her husband's had two semen analysis one showed sadly one percent morphology and the second one was zero they were due to have a another test and, and they're assuming it's because the first two weren't actually three months apart And so they were given a date for three months. Then suddenly the clinic now have changed that and they received letters saying that they're going to be seen in five months' time. And they're so upset because they've been told they had to wait three months for the semen analysis to be repeated. And now it looks like they're going to have to wait longer. So she's asking, you know, she's she's now 35, will easily be 37, potentially before she has her first baby at this rate. And she's so upset. Who do I talk to? What can I do? Or do I just accept Um... this? First, it's really frustrating for her, obviously, because they kind of want to know what the state of play is. It all depends why. I, there's absolutely no clinical reason why they've got to wait five months. There's some logistical reason with the clinic, COVID, busyness, whatever it might be. So in theory, you, she's got two choices. The one choice is, is frustratingly to wait and see and just do what she's been told. The other one, got to be frank, is say, pay 150 quid and get it done privately. The problem with the latter is that then what do you do with it? Because if you're going to do a test, you need somebody to interpret the results. And if it's exactly the same as it is, will her first clinic actually see her with that result and act on it, act on it any quicker? If they're not going to see her for six months anyway, whether she does a test there or somewhere else, then you could argue, why bother? If she's willing to have that test and then see somebody else to review it and act on it earlier, then she can do it. But, you know, or she can just do it for peace of mind to have the result, you know. But, you know, see, I see analysis... It's not the most expensive test in the world, so she could just bite the bullet, I suppose, and pay for it privately. One of the points that she'd made was that they hadn't felt it had been explained to them. So do you think in that example, it is worth pushing for a bit more of an explanation as to why this delay has been put in place? Yeah, absolutely, because it, it doesn't make, there's no there's no clinical reason for it. It's, it's not going to, you'll get enough of an idea three months in, possibly even sooner, to know where you are, to know where they're actually, because in theory, at 35, if the semen test is better, they may say, look, go away, keep trying naturally. It's unexplained. Going back to what we've truly discussed. If it's low, then actually, therefore, suddenly you're in that category in inverted commas where you've got a reason and your NHS funding might kick in earlier. So it's key. It sounds like it's a key, key result for them. Ask the expert. 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 So that reminder... 
to get in touch with us on our socials. I'm at Fertility Poddy. And I'm at Your Fertility Journey. And if you are posing a question and you want to DM it, that's absolutely fine. You can be anonymous. You just need to make sure you've subscribed to hear his answers because we're doing them in a kind of haphazard order to encourage you to come and listen to what he has to say because you never know, you might learn something quite interesting from a question that somebody else has posed. Thank you, as always, for your support. And until the next time. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.